0: It would definitely be interesting to just watch your day to day and how everything that you're doing in one day actually can, I don't know how you do it all. It's just crazy
1: to me, but it's very interesting. I'm really blessed that I have really good help. We've had an internship program for 26 years that we've taken interns internationally and domestic, usually part of a college degree of an animal science or a horse based program, and some veterinarian programs. And so, besides our core staff, we've always had kind of an influx of young people, and, and usually young people, and they've been just a godsend because sometimes when you've got the numbers, you just need hands. <laughs> you know, you just need help. You need yeah bodies. And in turn, these students get a benefit that they're not going to get from a textbook. And I always joke because I say a third of them never want to step foot on a breeding farm again. <laughs>
0: Them in on the rail at a jog, please. On the rail at a jog.
2: All righty, everybody, back this week with another On the Rail podcast. And this week we have Amy Gums. Very excited to be talking with her. It's going to be getting into breeding season full force coming up shortly in a few months. So we thought she would be a great interview to have on. So Amy, for people that don't know you or aren't familiar with you, would you want to give a little bit of background about yourself and describe your involvement in the horse industry both as an amateur and as a professional?
1: Sure. Thanks you guys for having me. I have been involved in the business at a professional level for about 30, 32 years, 35, something like that. At my age, you kind of want to quit camp. <laughs> but my niche is basically stallion management and breeding management. We've been very blessed over the course of time to manage some of the leading quarter horse paint Napaloosa stallions, really, in our country and worldwide. I've also been very blessed to manage some of the more high-profile mares in our industry as well. And that that business has allowed me to now finally get back out to showing. And I'm showing as a select amateur, and after I think it was a twenty three year hiatus, it wasn't the easiest thing, <laughs> but I've been back for probably about four years now and have really been enjoying those events, getting back out into the the show world. So after you got the
2: rust broken off, so we'll talk about this year. What horses are you showing this year yourself, and what events are you showing in?
1: Well, this year, and yes, rust is an understatement. It's because <laughs> what I knew from twenty five years ago is no part. What we do now. But this year I've been showing my select mare, which does the pleasure, the Western riding, and the performance mares, is best seat in the South. She's been a, a very challenging, but very rewarding and fun animal to show. I've also started with a three year old this year, perfectly Southern, and that one has been even a little bit more challenging as I dip my toe back in the fraternity arenas. But we're slowly but surely getting it together. And it's been equally, or maybe I should say more rewarding that these are our homebreds. They're ones that we've raised and they're ones that are, you know, by my stallion, it's a Southern thing.
2: I was just going to say, I'm guessing by the hit, their names that they were out of a uh, moon pie. So it's going to make sure you.
1: Yes, they are. Yeah. You know, you just get a little bit more connected when you kind of have that family in your backyard.
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's pretty cool. Well, take it back a few years and what got you initially started in the breeding business?
1: Well, a hundred years ago, or so it seems, we ended up with a stallion called a major leaguer about the same time that I found out I was pregnant with my daughter. So the showing kind of went a little bit on hold, and we found ourselves with this breeding stallion that we didn't know exactly what to do with. We had done a little smaller scale type of breeding, what I would call more be regional or local, but really not on a national or international level at all. And I really wanted to keep this horse close, and I had this big farm. My husband and I had this big farm in Indiana. And so it just kind of became a progression that, oh yeah, I can do this. I don't know if that was being dumb or stupid or both, but (laughs) that was kind of the task that I took on. And then this stallion had some breeding challenges that a lot of facilities were not equipped to be able to manage. So I kind of... Made the dive and and tried to surround myself with people a lot smarter than than I was, and people that were well versed with with stallions with breeding issues and so we learned how to manage him and then you kind of get this stupid idea well, if I can do one, certainly I can do two. And next thing you know, you know, one time we had 21 stallions and 1,200 mares running through our facility. Wow. Wow. (laughs) I don't know how we did it, especially at that time with two toddlers. I have people ask me how I managed that, and I I must have blocked it out because I can't even (laughs) tell them. Sure, it was a pretty challenging time in my life. I guess you just put your head down and get through it. So that's kind of how it all started, and it just kind of snowballed to what it became
2: were you standing that many stallions then when you were in Indiana still
1: in Indiana and i had started getting the reputation that that we could work with stallions that had behavioral or breeding issues and i was really blessed that i had a colleague dr sue mcdonald that must have felt sorry for me and took me under her wings and shared a lot of her knowledge and as a result these stallions that had issues because of disease and injury or even behavior just kind of came in droves. And that's when you're young and stupid and you don't have a lot of money and you think I can do that. It all becomes a challenge that you don't want to say no to. So we just ended up with this large, large number. And then it just kind of, uh, like I said, you just kind of got through the day because that's that's a long, long day to have, especially as you know, our breeding season is is fairly short. We did a lot of semen freezing, whereas we at that time we were an affiliate with select breeders, so we were approved to do a lot of international breeding. So really, we went, we had our push time, but we also went all year round, so it stayed pretty hectic. Hmm. Wow! And were you also foaling mares out at the same time, or just the breeding side? We did some foaling, but it was pretty much just a few customers here and there and then our own mares. In Indiana, I had probably thirty, forty mayors of my own and then a handful of really good customers that we managed, but nothing like what we dove into when we came into Kentucky that had, you know, an incentive program that they that the foals had to be born in the state. So it was a smaller scale, but it still was You know, it was a lot when you have all day of of trying to get semen sent out the door and mares to get bread. And oh, by the way, you know, mares seldom fall when it's convenient. So let's keep
2: it all night. (laughs) I said or during the day.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Well, actually, during the day is worse for us because when you've got the UPS and FedEx guy (laughs) knocking on your door at three o'clock and you're like, oh, my gosh, I'm only halfway done. I'd almost rather give up the sleep than than that. So,
2: yeah, things we don't think about, but you're probably right. (laughs) Yeah. Well, since you touched on Kentucky, I know that was a very big probably move in you guys' business and probably personal life too so back around like two thousand eight or so you're relocated to Kentucky I'm guessing as part of you know the quote unquote land rush of breeders and horses moving to Kentucky to be take part of their incentive program so what was that like relocating your entire breeding farm at that time?
1: Well, it was kind of interesting because I had decided believe it or not right before then that I think I'm going to slow down, and, you know, I have small children, and, you know, this is kind of a crazy lifestyle, and maybe I just need to downsize a little bit, and that was maybe 2000 and late 2006, early 2007, and then fund comes along, (laughs) and everybody gets the gold rush mentality, and again, I'm seeing a trend, I can do that, so... (laughs) We find a farm in western Kentucky, and I am blessed. I have a super, super supportive husband that is a non-horse person. So why he didn't tell me no, I still don't <laughs> know. But anyway, we found this farm on the internet. We come to Kentucky. We don't know anybody. We don't know anything about the area. We find this beautiful farm. If I recall, we came down on a Sunday, and we bought it on Tuesday. and it was just one of the, the world went inherit. It had a big house. It had a whopping, I think, 14 stalls, a lot of acreage. And I guess we're now part of the Kentucky incentive fund. So I packed up the kids and after Congress, we became Kentucky citizens. So we moved down here and my husband, which had commercial hunting lodges up in Northern Indiana, he stayed home. So he from afar managed putting up all these barns and you know, six miles of fence and everything that we needed to think we were prepared for the incentive fund, we were not. So fortunately, when we were in Indiana, we're used to doing the numbers. We're used to having a lot of of horses and, and bulk and knowing how to handle that. And at that time, I did bring two people, two long-term employees with me. So we moved down. And we kind of built as we went. And fortunately, the big push for folding wasn't there yet, but all of these mares were coming. And I think in 36 hours, I had over 80 stallions on the list that wanted to move once we, once we announced it. We took 14, and then it was just kind of hanging on for dear life because we're building as we go. We're, we've got all new horses. We've got all new staff. Well, that's not true. We have we have some existing staff, but we're adding new staff members, and it was awful. It was pretty much keeping your head above water. And then I kind of have to remind myself that if I think I had a twelve-year-old and a nine-year-old, so I've got you know no family. I have kids that need to be parented, mm-hmm. a husband that's six hours away, and oh, I look out my back door and there's four hundred mares here. Jeez, you put your head down, you get through it the following year is when all these things had to fall so we purchased a neighboring farm built a folding facility and away they came and i think we sold 158 out that first year and of course bred a lot of those back and it just stayed kind of that hectic pace for a couple of years and again i don't remember a lot about it i just think it was kind of a blur like i've said before because there was so much going on but Over time, the program is a great program. I'm a huge, huge proponent of the Kentucky Incentive Fund, but a lot of people had unrealistic expectations. They either, you know, a lot of farms moved down here. They either didn't have the experience in dealing with that many mares and mares owners and different stallions and everything that comes with having that many horses at at one place, or they, they thought it was a retirement package, and it's not. It, like I said, again, it's a state funded program. It gets its money from the sales tax on breedings, which is predominantly from the thoroughbred racing industry. We've been blessed that they gave a percentage to non-racing show horses, which is what we've got. I think when it started and everybody ran down here, it was like $2,000 a point. Mm. But that's because there was only a couple stallions here and a couple people that participated. And that pot is the size it's going to be. It just depends how thin it's it's cut up. So those first few people, you know, they were just getting checks for twenty, thirty thousand dollars 30000 But when you start adding... Thousands of mayors now coming to the state and hundreds of stallions standing here. that obviously gets kind of watered down. So I think a lot of people got disappointed in the program. It lost some of its luster. I may be wrong, but I think I'm the only one left, mm. at least on a larger scale. But I think it's a great program. It's not something you're going to retire on. They're continuing to make it better. They, they've they worked really hard to find other ways to fund it. But at the end of the day, it's probably going to pay for your stall and your shavings. Maybe you're hauling, but it's not going to be something that you retire on.
2: It may be better than the incentive funds available right now by, you know, AQHA and APHA still. I don't know how it compares to them point value wise, or is it about the same?
1: An AQHA incentive fund. I mean, I think there's some talk of, of, Kind of getting that going again, but there's currently not. Oh, you've okay. got there's trust. You've got the NSBA stallion incentive fund, but I could be off a little bit. But I think the Kentucky program's around eighty three dollars a point. Oh, okay, which is substantially more than any of the other programs. Mm-hmm. But it is a born and bred program, so it's got to be a stallion that's here in the state, and the mayor has to fold in the state. So even if you roll across state lines and Basically, fall at a rest stop. It's it's okay, but it still has to be done in the state of Kentucky.
2: That was my next question. Was when they started this program, the stallions had to stand in Kentucky. Did the and the mares had to actually come to Kentucky to breed, or could you ship?
1: No, to the quarter horses, they had to be in the state of Kentucky. So I could ship to another breeding farm in Kentucky. Okay, now paints had a loophole, and paints allowed you to ship out of the state, but they still had to return to the state to fall. To
2: fall, correct.
1: Those two a little had a little bit different rules, but basically that's just, you know, it's an economic development program. So the more those horses come to the state, it's it's more hotel rooms, it's more gasoline, it's more restaurants. It's, it's an economic development program and it did what it was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. You know, it generated money. I mean, people like Like me that came in and they're buying farms and they're buying tractors and they're buying inputs, you know, is a big punch, you know, I think to some of the smaller communities for sure.
2: Do you think the thoroughbred industry was pretty receptive to the show horse part of it or did they even even bat an eye at it? Was it even on their radar of anything?
1: I think I don't really think it's on their radar. I mean, we get I mean, we get a nice check from them, but the big picture, it's a pretty small (laughs) Mm-hmm. but they did take it, really took offense to embryo transfers. Mm. And I know they worked and negotiated a long time because, you know, AI is is a dirty word as far as they're concerned. So then if you mention embryo transfers, I mean, that just sent them over the edge. So I know that Norm Luba and I'm sure other people involved in the program worked really hard to kind of come to an agreement to allow us to do that. Mm-hmm. So that's the only thing that I was really aware that they Kind of balked at.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's understandably so with where they are in their breeding practices still to this day. So, the program still exists currently. It's just not what it was supposed to be back then. But it's still probably better than it sounds like the current incentive of programs that are out there.
1: I think it is what it started to be. Like I said, I think we had unrealistic expectations. I actually had seen business plans from people that they thought they were going to retire off of this in Kentucky has been trying to get casinos and gambling, and, and it doesn't have that. And a lot of that would have helped fund this program, but that just didn't materialize. Mm-hmm. But again, we still get a, a lot of money off of, well, we get all the money. The pot is funded from the sales tax. And then it also, There, I believe there's a little bit of money that comes from the, they've got a little bit of expanded gaming that's in place. But it, it's just not, I think, what we all, including myself, thought it could be. But as a stallion owner, you get kind of like the old incentive fund, you know, you get 10% of what those foals generate. And the Kentucky Incentive Program pays like the old Quarter Horse Incentive Program on open and amateur events. So I forget about it. And I get $25,000, $30,000 a year that I forget about for my little 10%. So is that something I'm going to retire on? No. Is it a nice surprise? Most definitely.
2: Absolutely. But I can't even begin to wrap my head around the amount of expense you guys had to build all these facilities and get, I mean, that has to be extraordinary for that large of an operation.
1: Exactly. And I don't even want to think about it because I certainly
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Alrighty. Well, before we move away from the Kentucky program, Liz, did you have any questions on that stuff?
0: It's actually not on the Kentucky portion, but as a stallion owner and breeding operation manager, do you feel like, or do you incentivize with any of the other programs, like Premier, you mentioned NSBA, do you put any of your stallions in any of those other programs, or do you focus mainly on just the Kentucky Incentive Fund?
1: I would say Kentuckys actually are least focused on because anymore so few people participate in it. Unless you're in the state or you're a neighboring state, people don't see the value in it. Therefore, they don't participate. Maybe someone who was going to send their mayor to fall out anyway would send it to Kentucky, but especially a lot of people, they just can't justify it. So that's actually probably our least hmm. highlighted program. And the stallions all pretty much stay in the similar programs, and we try to reach the national programs that will benefit the most number of people. I probably get 50 inquiries a year of all the state and local programs that want you to, to participate in, and, and I wish we could. It just doesn't pencil, since, especially since these horses are, these stallions are investments for a lot of their owners, and, and myself included. So we try to pick the programs that can benefit the most. So Premier, Super Sires, NSBA, BCF and SIF are kind of the core programs. Some stallions participate in the Paint Breeders Trust and then from there it kind of depends on what the stallion owner wants to do or what I encourage is every year I look at the demographics of of our mayor owners. And if I have Twenty percent of our mayor owners coming from Michigan and the Michigan program, their fraternity is important. well, then we need to participate in it. If I have one person that is in Utah, I can't justify pushing for a donation like that to benefit one person, not trying to minimize that one person, but you know these stallions that i that we stand, they book full, and I close their books, but they all breed a hundred or more, so I really kind of have to look to see who's going to get the most benefit out of the programs that we enroll in.
0: Hmm. Makes sense. It would definitely be interesting to just watch your day-to-day and how everything that you're doing in one day actually can, I don't know how you do it all. It's just crazy to me, but it's very interesting.
1: I'm really blessed that I have really good help. We've had an internship program for 26 years that we've taken interns internationally and domestic, usually part of a college degree of an animal science or a horse based program and some veterinarian programs. And so, besides our core staff, we've always had kind of an influx of young people and, and usually young people, and they've been just a godsend because sometimes when you've got the numbers, you just need hands, (laughs) you know, you just need help. You need yeah, bodies. And in turn, these students get a benefit that they're not going to get from a textbook. And I always joke because I say a third of them never want to step foot on a breeding farm again. (laughs) It's not nine to five. And there are great things that happen and there's bad things that happen. And I appreciate knowing you don't want to do this anymore. And I have a third that says, you know, and that third leaves, leaves the industry. They, they're usually gone. <laughs> I have a third that says, you know, this is really cool. I was glad I was here, but I just don't know that it's for me. Maybe I'll look in a different part of the industry. And to me, again, figuring out what you don't want to do is have the battle. And then you have a third that go with gusto. And I'm so, I'm always really proud when I see that they're prominent vets or they're professors Or they're working at other breeding farms as breeding managers, and they're doing great. And most of them stay in touch, or they'll send a kudos every so often. Hey, I I forgot that you taught me how to do this, and this has really helped. Or, like I said, a couple of them have really gone on and turned into great veterinarians. And that's just, that's what the program's about. They work really hard, and they help me, but we, in turn, help them. That's pretty cool.
2: That reminds me vaguely of my sister. She got out of college, went to animal science, got out of college, interned for a big breeding ranch in Texas, and then ended up interning for Colorado State's breeding reproduction laboratory. Enjoyed that experience. Went on to become their manager there, and then years go by or whatever, and she kind of got burnt out and got ran over by a recent mare. I think was like the last straw, and so she ended up going back to pharmacy school and works in a whole different career field now but yeah it's not for the faint of heart by any means
1: well that's an understatement because it's physical work it's mental work it's not a 40 hour week it's an 80 hour week if you're lucky and you know it burnout is very very pop and not popular but common
2: absolutely i want to talk a little bit about the stallions that you will be standing going into 2023 so you have no doubt i'm lazy enticed and then it's a southern thing so, tell us a little bit about what makes each stud extraordinary, and also what type of mares you found that each cross best on.
1: Well, we're really blessed as I've gone to start showing and getting a little older and we're empty nesting, and we've tried to downsize substantially from the normal number of stallions to just the couple that that are kind of the core of our program. No doubt, I'm lazy. That's owned by Frank and Lynn Barris. Has been here since he's four. I think he's going to be 17, so he's been here for a while. Wow, wow. Um, has been a million dollar sire. He's been a great sire. I, I lost count, and I probably should count of the number of, of world and, and Congress champions that he's he's sired. We just keep seeing new events that his that his foals are doing. I mean, traditionally the pleasure is what you think, but. We've got some hunt cedars, got a lot of trail, and we're seeing a lot of people do everything from the performance halter or the regular halter, even starting to see a few of them in some of the ranch riding events. Oh cool. Hmm. He surprised me a little bit. I didn't think we'd see as much versatility with these foals, but given the fact that he you know he breeds a good number of mares and different kinds of mares, and that allows them to you know those mares add a lot of strengths that the stallions don't necessarily have or you expect and and they go on and they do these other events which is kind of the same thing what i'm seeing with with it's a southern thing again i really did see him as being maybe more of an all-around sire but you know he's done his foals have done incredibly well in the pleasure incredibly well in the hunt seat for a young sire he's closely nearing his million-dollar mark also with numerous congress and world titles And super sires of the year a couple of times. So again, everybody's like, oh, that's a Western riding horse. That's all he's going to do. And we're seeing that that's not the case. And we're starting to see them now that they're getting older in the Western riding, but we've just had really great success in the pleasure. And and I didn't see this really strong hunt seat market coming. Mm -hmm. That's here. That's been kind of a, a good shot in the arm that you didn't expect. And along those lines is kind of how we ended up with Enticed. He's one that that I raised here. So it's kind of exciting when you have one that you raised and, and fold and the whole nine yards and then goes on and the The Deeds family own him and, and he's won great titles as a three-year-old and he's our junior stallion. So we did a small test book this past year. So we're expecting about 40 babies and that's going to be super exciting to see what we have. Most of those were English mares couple of them were not, so the jury's going to be out to see see what we get.
2: <laughs> yeah, I guess I didn't realize that how versatile, no doubt I'm lazy, has been a, as a sire even. Because if I'm not mistaken, he's
1: not super tall, right? He's not. He's he's 15 hands on a good day. I mean, he's right. not a really big horse. That was one of my concerns as a sire. It's like, oh, do we have enough size and bone? And But he's got a lot of size and he's got a lot of bone if you go back in his, his pedigree. And, you know, I usually tell people with mares, you know, take a little bigger mare, a little bigger body, to, you know, and some people listen to me, some people I don't. But I've seen 16-2 hunt seats babies sired by him which have gone on to do great things. I'm not going to say that the hunt seat's his market, but just the versatility, it's it's we've really kind of seen it all over the place.
2: Mhm. I remember when he was showing himself and I loved him
1: a lot. <laughs> well, and he's a really neat horse, still wonderfully sound. And, you know, the joke would be, we'd have little, probably shouldn't say this, little mini horse shows and everybody would fight to see who would, who would be able to ride him. And to this day, you could put your hand down and go to a horse show. So just a, a really neat, neat horse. Super cool.
0: I actually, for whatever reason, when you said versatility, it struck a little chord in my brain about some conversation we've had, I don't know, a couple of interviews ago, and I might be going too soon because I know we were going to talk about kind of the Economic standings, but do you foresee since your stallions that you're standing are pretty versatile that more people are breeding to them, maybe, you know, going into 2023 versus maybe the last couple years? We had this conversation about with the economy changing, people want more bang for their buck at the horse show. So they want to do more of the all around stuff instead of specializing in. Western Pleasure or Hunter Under Saddle, do you see those trends at all in the breeding area of our industry? Is that kind of, does anyone track that sort of thing or like, do you see that at all? I don't
1: have a lot of requests or hear a lot of people, and that's some, but not a lot that says, hey, I'm breeding for that all around horse, which you kind of would think that they they would. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's in their mind and they don't express it to me, but most of them really seem to be breeding for the rail at least initially, the fraternity horses, a lot of them want to sell these things as yearlings. And when you buy a weanling for an all-around prospect, that's a big, big commitment. So what I hear more often than not is, you know, they're trying to find something marketable, something that is going to be able to be sold probably as a fraternity prospect. And then bonus would be being able to go on for the other events. Unfortunately, they're just, you know, there's not a lot of people that says, hey, I want to hold on to this thing for five years until it can do five events. It might have changed hands, you know, two or three times by then. Mm -hmm. So I don't really, I don't really have a lot of conversation that they're necessarily breeding with the all around in mind. Gotcha.
0: Just for whatever reason, I don't know why that struck a question in me when you said versatility, but yeah.
1: I think you see they'll breed for these fraternity babies that can then as, you know, three, four, five, go on and add other events and be able, you know, you've got these athletic, wonderful creatures that can do the other events, but I don't know how many breeders really set out to do that. That makes sense.
2: Yeah, on the subject of versatility, I know Moon Pie has been really incredible on his ability to sire like actual Western pleasure rail quality offspring as well as rail quality hunter under saddle fraternity prospects, even. And I kind of kind of currently run more on the hunter and saddle side of things. So I'm very familiar with a lot of his hunt seater offsprings, but did you always foresee him have the ability to do that? Or has that really been, I mean, I guess you did say that you, the hunt seat market has been a little bit of a surprise to you, but what has the journey been like, I guess, managing him through his career and now as a breeding sire?
1: Well, I don't know if journey is the right word when it comes to him since I had a major leaguer in that I would never own a stallion again. And it always would be perceived as a conflict of interest, which is ironic because anybody that's really had much of a conversation with me will find out that I will push every customer horse until you get to mine. But perception is everything. And, you know, you'd hear, oh, well, she owns that stallion, so I can't have my stallion stand there, or she's going to push breedings on another horse. So I said I was never going to do it, never going to do it. So I had the option to buy an embryo. At that time, I did not own his mother and bought an embryo from She's a Hot Cookie, one of the greatest mares that I've ever had the privilege of being around her or managing and ultimately owning. And so I was able to buy an embryo, bred her to one of my favorite stallions, only in the moonlight that was here. And lo and behold, we had moon pie. It's kind of funny because everybody says, well, how do you know that they're special? And I joke because you're having you know almost 200 babies born this year. And I said, well, when you run those numbers, it's like the heavens part. And this light comes down and shines on this baby. And it stands up and you're like, this is a good one.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And you'll have only three or four of those a year if you're lucky. And he was one of those. And it was kind of funny because my daughter, you know, named a moon pie because you had Mooney and Cookie. Mm, how cute. Okay. I didn't really know what a moon pie was at that time. <laughs> and, you know, I kept watching them going, you know, this one might, might be a stud horse. And because I gild everything. I mean, everybody jokes for someone who manages stallions, nothing has testicles on this farm. We just gilded our entire full crop Friday. So we just don't have a lot of stud colts. And for some reason... I just I just didn't cut them. So we had a couple people express interest in buying them as a baby. It, you know, I just really wasn't crazy about pricing them, which is again unusual for me because everything's for sale. So we ended up keeping them and started on the the journey of showing them, which I have to, I guess, back up. We're going and we're looking for this name to name this horse. And you're going through all the typical, you know, this is gonna be this needs a stud horse. Again, my daughter Taylor goes. Mom, you're missing this. It's it's a southern thing. And I'm like, well, what is that? Well, just name them. It's a southern thing. I'm thinking that's kind of cool. We live in the South now, in a way. And then it wasn't until a few months later I realized that that was the slogan for the moon pod. <laughs> so I guess I really have to give credit to a huge marketing bonus that I got from my daughter because I was oblivious to the whole thing. So you know, he started his career we we had a little bit of a rough start. He did show in the Masters as a two-year-old. He was fifth. Didn't show really as a three-year-old. We had some, really had to do some training issues and, and had some, the little bit of the boy issues that can come with keeping him stallions. And, and plus, we were doing a little bit of, of freezing and collecting semen at that time, which doesn't always help that situation. But he was then with Shane and Jamie Dowdy and they went on to do a lot of different events. Um, you know, he showed the pleasure. I think most successful, and I'm not most successfully known, is Jamie doing the runoffs in the Western riding. And, and, you know, he was, it was just a lot of fun. We had great success. We had a good time. And at the same time, it was awful because I managed hundreds of stallions, but this horse had my heart. And I know to be a stallion manager or to be a stallion owner, you have to have skin like leather because people are vicious. They are awful. And you have to be able to really not care. Well, this is my hard horse. I mean, I pulled him out of his I made him in the lab. I mean, this is this is my guy. <laughs> and you started taking it a little personally. And you know, with success comes a lot of negatives too. And so it almost became my, my quest and my fight that I had to protect and I had to advocate for this horse. Then that's kind of how Jamie, Jamie Dowdy felt as well. They bonded and, you know, he would give 110% to her and did. And kind of going back to where you're, um, your hunt seat question was kind of at the last minute because Moonpie's good size. He's not a huge hunt seat horse, but he's 16 hands. Kind of at the last minute, we got Jerry Erickson to uh catch ride him, took him to the green in the Congress, the green hunt seat. And I think if my memory serves, he was fifth out of 108 green horses. And I think that was the second time he in the hunt seat. So kind of, you know, we did like I said, we've had good success and we've kind of had it all over the board. But I think part of that was we developed a really strong marketing campaign. We connected with Chattanooga Bakery that has moon pies. We worked that to the best of our advantage here. And, you know, we had this big, sexy horse that, and we have this beautiful woman on them that, you know, everybody wanted, that's what you want to be like. I mean, who doesn't want, I mean, they'd go out there and change leads and who doesn't want to do that? It was just kind of that, like I said, a sexy look that gravitated. I mean, everybody gravitated to it. So that part was fun. The development, the marketing, all of that. Having to fight like I felt like I did for him, it was like giving birth on a weekly basis. And again, I will never have another stallion again. I keep telling people when when Moon Pie's done, so am I. It was great. And then now to have his babies. And to show his babies and to go out and see, you know, because I had all these people say, oh, well, he's not a breeding horse. He's never going to be a breeding horse. He's never going to sire a pleasure horse for sure. And to see them and to do what you knew that they could do is is really beyond rewarding.
2: And how old is he now? He
1: is, well, I guess he'll be 13.
2: Okay. I was like, I remember, I think Jamie wrote him and they had like a runoff in the Western Riding at the World Show. Is that my
1: again, that was giving birth about every hour. (laughs) And then I get there and she had a great, great run with him. Blake had a great run with Snap, Cracker, Pop, and they tied. And so they'd already pulled the the course. They had to put the course back out again. They did a runoff again. They tied again.
2: How does that happen?
1: (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't happen. They wanted him to run off a third time. And And Jamie said it right. You know, are we just supposed to take two of these great animals and keep going until one fails? Because that's what they were doing. They weren't at that point, you know, people, horses, everything's exhausted. And we're just supposed to want to see one fail. So they actually refused to do the third run out. And they calculated all of this judge's scores from both runs without dropping any or adding any. And we lost by a point. Oh. Mm. But they were gracious, and I think AQHA still uses the great picture and video of the two of them holding hands mm-hmm. in the victory lap because really they, they both won. I mean, like I said, great riders, great horses, and mm-hmm. pretty exciting times. Pretty exciting.
2: Both of those horses have gone on to be incredible breeding animals, uh, you know, and today
1: they both had crushes on each other, but that hasn't been something that we've been able to get. <laughs> to- <laughs> I guess my bucket list would be to to see a brandy pie.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. That w- might be the Western writing like future of the industry. How oh, cool. All righty. So for breeders that are actually, you know, not the professional types and maybe not somebody brand new to the game, but let's say you're a recreational hobbyist breeder type, what kind of quick tips can you give to mare owners on how to best plan or get your mare prepared or be ready for her to breed next
1: spring? My best suggestion is to do your homework, and most people don't. You know, you need a good team for this to work. You need to pick a stallion that's going to complement your mare, have some marketability that can also service your needs when they're needed. On the mare end, you need to have a, a good team. You need to have a good vet or a good breeding facility, and you need to have all these ducks in a row. I mean, we're culturing mares now. Mares are under lights. They're getting ready, so that you're just not kind of caught with your pants down. And then, because I see that a lot, that it's kind of a last minute, and they, they can't believe that the stallion is already booked, or they didn't didn't think that they needed to do their homework and make sure we've got a clean cultures and clean cytologies, and that we've got as much in our favor as we can, because mares don't read the books. They have their own book. <laughs> the best plan can fail, but when you don't have a plan you're almost destined to fail. And then that person gets big bills. They get frustrated. They're blaming everybody. And really, do your homework. If you already had your ducks in a row, I would imagine, I can't promise it, but I would imagine your conversation would be different.
2: Mm -hmm. As a mare owner of paint horses, I primarily do paint horses. So if I was going to breed, we'll say Moon Pie, if I wanted to breed my paint mare to Moon Pie, even though she's a paint, but he's a quarter, can you ship him and she, that baby still be eligible for the Kentucky stuff if she fold in Kentucky or does it have to be paint to paint? Is that, has that ever come up?
1: Allians can participate, but again, they do have to, they can ship to say Oklahoma, but that mayor would have to return mm-hmm. to the state of Kentucky to fold
2: to full, but the shipping's okay because it's on a paint mirror. Correct. It's a little different rules. Okay. I wish they need to have all the rules the same so we don't,
1: <laughs> so it doesn't <laughs> have to be that hard. thing is, it's them being able to slip was kind of an oversight because each breed association submitted their proposals. And I guess that just that little line fell through the cracks and it got accepted. So, you know, because it makes a lot of quarter horse breeders mad. You know, why can the paints do it and we can't? But
2: mm-hmm.
1: it was just when the racing committee approved these other breeds, they approved their breeding practices and somehow the paints got approved to ship and quarters did not.
2: Yeah, it had to have been a one time loophole. And they haven't obviously changed it since the beginning, since the inception.
1: Nothing has changed. They just periodically look at, the way that the money's distributed in the non-racing horses is based on breed and the demographics in the state of Kentucky so i think maybe the percentages change a little bit but that's that's the only real change that i'm aware of
2: okay and here's the kind of an off the cuff question for you. You see on Facebook all the time, you'll have like a mare owner that's like, who should I breed my mare to? And they like throw up a picture or say nothing. Do you have any tips on helping mare owners decide what stallions would actually cross well with that mare rather than just going after like the biggest name out there or thinking they have a pretty ad. So I'm going to breed to that guy. Like, is there, what would you say to that?
1: Well, I always get a kick out of the who should I breed my mare to post and there's no picture, there's no description, there's nothing. And, and then you see that there's 200 replies with everybody, mm-hmm. me, 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 mm-hmm. you know, and I don't think that's probably the best breeding decision. <laughs> Mares traditionally, in in my opinion, you know, they, they breed to their pedigree, they breed to their mothers. If you have a mare that is not a producer as of yet, do a little research and see what her mother has produced and on what bloodlines. A lot of times they'll breed fairly true. So if you've got a mare that's always bred really well, uh, her mother has always bred really well with, let's just say the impulsions line, unless she's an impulsions herself, that's going to give you some idea that that investor line might be of interest to you. You know, there's a lot of tools out there, uh, AQHA's website has that Q stallions, and it's not all-inclusive, but it incorporates the Robin Grillin statistics, and they've got an, a free mare-nicking report. Nobody uses this. I shouldn't say nobody. Very few people use this. It's a great tool. You don't have to necessarily—it's it's not a, a Bible. It's not going to guarantee if you take mare X and you breed it to stallion Y, it's the next world champion, but it's going to do exactly what I just said and look at these pedigrees and see— how these families work, because families traditionally will breed similarly throughout time, kind of bouncing back i was I was blessed that I stood and could see the success of what kind of mare crossed with only in the moonlight. so when I had moon pie, I went and bought mares bred similarly to what he worked the best with, so you know in, you know when I would look at stats and I would know from experience. That was the mares that I went and filled my test breeds up or or really my pastures up and and mare. And so that's what I did is for a stallion, but it's very similar to a mare. You just, you need a stallion that's popular, I guess, and you need a stallion that's marketable. But at the end of the day, you need a stallion that's going to compliment your mare. And sometimes the biggest name isn't that compliment. And then I think you also, and this might have Tie in a little bit with the economy question we had earlier. You need to look at which of these stallions are in these programs because buyers want that. They want a foal that's eligible to win all of this money. And those stallions that don't make those investments, you know, they're just, you have a tendency to kind of overlook those foals when you're at the sales. We do a lot at the NSBA yearling sale and having those foals in those right programs. It's it's huge. It's it, we have people come up and that's that's the first thing they ask. Yes, it needs to be a nice animal, but it needs to be an animal that can participate in these programs. That's a huge commitment from the stallion owner. It's a huge financial commitment to this from the stallion owner. But it's it's what if you're if you're buying to sell that foal, you're going to have to look at a little bit of name recognition, who's the programs in, and ultimately the one that's going to complement my mare. Mm-hmm. I think that's great advice.
2: Mm-hmm. All righty. Well, on a kind of lighter note, what is something unusual or ironic or funny that the average person should know about running a large breeding operation?
1: Oh, I would say that you need to have a a helpline directly to someone that can give you psychotic drugs. <laughs> <laughs> We have downsized significantly, but it's it's a lot of work. And as I get older, it's, it's not for the faint of heart. You know, what I did 30 years ago, I would do in a half a day, might take me a week nowadays. It's a huge commitment. And you really need to have some pretty strong people skills. You know, I've met some people through the breeding business that I'm so blessed. Some that have become great friends or just people that have been great people in my life. And I've met some people that I would say not so much. Dealing with the horses is easy. Dealing with the people sometimes, especially Mm -hmm. as times have evolved, is maybe not so much. So when I say that I need a direct call or hotline to my psychiatrist, I I may not be me wrong there. But (laughs) you certainly have to learn to continue to have plan B because things never stop changing. They never stop evolving. And really, they just don't stop.
2: Right. That's awesome. I love that. Yeah. So what sets uh, Gums Farm apart from other breeding operations?
1: Well, you know, there are some really, really great breeding operations. So I don't know that there's really that much that I can toot my own horn because, you know, really everybody in this business, they work hard. It's a little scary that we're all getting older and I don't see a lot of young ones cropping up. But, you know, when you look in and I think of some of the major farms that come to, to mind, they work hard. I don't know that I'm any better than anybody else you know, and and where I used to think my strengths are, quite frankly, they've caught up with me. So I can't even say that anymore. But, you know, I don't know that there is one. I think we pay a lot of attention to detail and and we try really hard to market a good product for the mare owners. And I think we do backflips to try to accommodate mare owners, but I don't know that that's any different than anybody else. I think everybody's, you know, just really trying to make it work. How many mares do you fall out now, nowadays, currently? We just do our in-house mares. Okay. I don't keep a huge number. And like I said, I've kind of dwindled down to a core group that we pull embryos from and a few of them will carry themselves. So we probably, I think this year, we've only got 22, 23 on the books. And frankly, that's enough. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I was like, that'll still keep you busy for a while. You talked a little bit about the yearling fertility sales. And I know you guys do a lot of that, especially with NSBA. Have you seen any change in the trends or the results of those sales? Or what do you anticipate happening in 2023, given the current economic climate, if anything different?
1: Well, I guess on a couple days here, we'll have a little better idea of maybe what our economic climate will be. But the sales have been strong. They've been good. And But at the same time, when you take a good product that's properly prepared, you're going to be rewarded. And I have this conversation often, especially with people new in the business, and I get a little frustrated, you know, because someone will say, well, my horse only brought X. Well, again, I guess I could go back. You really didn't do your homework. If, I, if I'm if i going to take the gloves off and, and not be nice, your horse isn't really prepared. You may have a good product, but it's presentation. Mm-hmm. And these sales do a great job of offering an an incentive and a place to showcase our horses. But we still have to connect with those buyers. And, and I don't see, I think for the most part people do, but I think when I see people that get in and they get frustrated, it's because that really, really isn't met. And I'm not saying that you have to send your yearling or your horse to someone to present it for you. But if you can't make that commitment to prepare that product, then that might be something that needs to be a conversation.
2: It's like much like the Chopin itself, if you could have the most talented horse in there, but if you aren't don't look the part or don't show up prepared then you're probably not going to get the best favorable look from the judges and in this case buyers
1: yeah exactly it's the exact same situation I mean I see a lot of really good prospects that I would like to say boy I really wish we had that one 90 days ago they just I think would have a whole different conversation or a whole different take on the sales because really you know we don't have a lot of yearling sales left but what we've got are, are good and they're good programs and they're programs that people want to buy through but you've got to show them that the this product has a chance of of participating in those programs. Mm -hmm. And not everybody does that.
2: Yeah. Is there anything additional important you think people should know about Gums Farms?
1: Well, I don't know. I guess uh, my biggest thing (laughs) is, hey, I'm getting older and I don't remember like I used to. So when you get that blank stare, it's not that. (laughs) Don't take it personally. Don't take it personally. (laughs) I, I laugh because I had this brain like a steel <laughs> trap and I could remember someone that bred twenty years ago and what their mare was and what it produced and everything like now and now I'm trying to remember sometimes what I had for lunch so I tell people I said I'm really not trying to be a jerk really, uh, struggle a little bit I kind of thought as I took things off my plate you know my kids are gone we we've downsized a little bit that it would Some of this would bounce back, but I can't say that it has.
2: Probably some of those years of the heavy antipsychotic drugs weigh in there, right? (laughs) I'm I'm totally joking, by the way, everybody. So well, that's all the questions I have for you, Amy. (laughs) Liz, did you have any last questions for us? No, I'm good.
0: Definitely insightful because we don't well, I personally don't do much in the breeding scope of things. So always learning about what you guys do and the management. Part of that is intriguing. So I appreciate the conversation today.
2: Yeah. Well, with that, we will wrap things up. But, Amy, do you want to provide any of your social media info or contact info if anybody would like to get a hold of you for breeding inquiries?
1: Really. All the stallions have their own websites, but they all go through gumsfarms.com, and sometimes that's the easiest way. Same with on Facebook and Instagram. It's it's the individual stallions' names or Gums Farms, and I'm pretty good at staying on those and getting back with people because I know that we are now, time is of the essence. You know, a lot of our stallions are getting close to getting booked full, which appears to be kind of a trend this year. We've got a lot of stallions out there that are, Either taking less mares or, or have full books. So, I guess one of the ways to get a hold of us would be from either email, website, or social media. But I guess I would probably do it sooner than later.
2: Yeah, absolutely. But that's a good um, indication of the market. I guess the stallion books are filling up already. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Well, that's all I have for you guys today. So, we will wrap this episode up. Amy, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. We will talk to you soon. All right, great. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Bye. All right, that'll be your class. Bring them in and line them up.